Welcome to episode number 11 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're looking at creating a worldwide community focusing on workplace safety and industries handling combustible powders and dusty materials. Today's episode, we have our first return guest, Dr. Ivan Papaliti. You remember Dr. Ivan Papaliti from episode number six, where we talked with the U.S. Chemical Safety Board, focusing on a call to action or on their call to action on combustible dust. That's a program that they initiated that ended at the end of 2018 they're currently working on now. After the interview, I had some great discussion um, off the recording with Dr. Pupiliti about his thoughts around incident investigation, around the traditional approach that's being used, uh, kind of a more prescriptive approach, and then some new innovations that he's been involved in within the space. This was a, an area of his academic research, an area that he's focused heavily on throughout his extensive career with the U.S. Forest Services, and investigating deadly accidents that occur with U.S. firefighters. Um, in particular, aviation response to, to U.S. forest fires and how they went from their more traditional prescriptive investigation approach to what he's calling a, a new learning review process. This material fits in well with our current focus for 2019, which is understanding combustible dust as a global challenge and developing global solutions because it really brings in expertise from outside the combustible dust space to tackle this kind of problem that we have with incident investigation and processing. So I really want to get Ivan on to talk about his experience from the U.S. Forest Services and what takeaways we can have with investigating combustible dust explosions within industries and coming up with real solutions on what is the normal operating procedures and what changes need to be made to those operating procedures to prevent fires, explosions, and in injuries in these industries. This episode will be a little bit different than what you're used to. Um, normally, we do either a kind of solo session or a back-and-forth question-answer. I actually got a recording from Dr. Pupiliti that he did for the podcast episode that covered a lot of his thoughts on the learning review process. And I kind of cut that recording up and put it in different pieces. And that's how you'll see it come through in this episode. If you have any comments or thoughts on this format, if you like this format, you can leave a comment in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 11 for this episode. If you have any questions or thought about the actual content, looking at different and new ways to do investigation, accident investigations, be sure to visit the show notes there to, to read through the material, to leave your thoughts, and to share the, the content with the broader community. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Ivan. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Ivan Pupiliti on incident investigation. This material is actually sent in as a video that he sent or an audio clip that he sent discussing the project, and we'll go through it in pieces. The material is from a paper that he, he wrote with his co-author Krista Vessel of Dynamic Inquiry, LLC. The paper is entitled The Learning Review, Adding to the Incident Investigation Toolbox. This was submitted as part of the European Safety, Reliability, and Data Association's 53rd seminar in November 2017. So this work really looks to tackle the traditional incident investigation and challenge some of the, the process that are involved also challenge the, the value and the lessons that we learn and takes a new approach to, to this investigation. We'll talk through a lot of that in this episode. Dr. Pupoli formulated a lot of this approach during his time with the U.S. Forest Services. Between 1995 and 2015, Forest Services lost over 400 wildland firefighters in active duty operation. Um, despite this, using their traditional investigation approach, with they, which they called the Serious Accident Investigation Guide, they were unable to, to actually create change in how they're handling these wildland fires and also reduce the rate of, of fatalities to the firefighters. So that's why the, when they started looking at a new process of incident investigation. 
And we thought that we could take this information in and start to look at how could this be applied in combustible dust safety across the broader North America and, and around the world. In the show notes, which you can find at dustsafetyscience.com slash 11, that's the number 11, you can find links to the original paper, the learning review, adding to the investigation toolbox. You can also find links to the Serious Accident Investigation Guide from the U.S. Forest Services. In this first clip, Dr. Papaliti will talk about how he got into safety with the U.S. Forest Services, some of his background, and why he saw the need to look at accident investigation in the first place. Hi, my name is Ivan Papaliti, and I was the director of the Office of Innovation and Learning for the U.S. Forest Service for many years. I came to this position from a kind of circuitous route. I started out as a pilot flying for the Coast Guard in 1985. I flew for the Coast Guard for 10 years, and in that period of time, I lost two friends in aviation accidents. I moved from the Coast Guard to the Forest Service, and within the first year, I'd lost three friends in aviation accidents. By the time I'd spent 10 years in the Forest Service, I'd lost over 25 friends in aviation-related accidents fighting wildland fires in the United States. I had to do something. My first step was to become an aviation safety manager, which I did in Region 2, which is Denver, Colorado. And there I tried to do different things in aviation to try and bring about change in aviation. Most of these were traditional. I became uh, one of the chief investigators for the Forest Service for accident investigation. I attended, by this time, both the Air Force Safety Program, the Navy Safety Program, and the USC Aviation Safety Certificate Program. Having completed all of those accident investigation courses, I felt like I was pretty well equipped to do accident investigation until I hit the ground on a ground fire fatality investigation. That clip gives some information on Dr. Papaliti's background and what led him to incident investigation safety overall, but also illustrates the kind of typical path a lot of people take, which is developing courses or attending courses. Um, learning in the area, and then going out and trying to apply it in the real world. And what the struggle is, or at least from the conversations with, with Ivan, is that a lot of those courses are really provide as linear thinking. We know this happened, so then what happened to cause that? What was the cause of that? What was the cause of that? And at the end of the day, what human error led to that cause? But this begs the question, do incidents actually happen in this kind of linear manner? And Ivan talks about this as a, a more of a systems approach between simple complicated and complex systems and how complex systems are more relevant to large-scale forest fires and industrial accidents. When I got to the field and I saw what was happening with ground fire personnel, I recognized that there was something missing in our approach to accident investigation. Now, when I say missing, I don't mean that these reports were, were less complete. What I mean is that there was really a big hole in what we were looking at. We were trying to find out what was causative in these accidents, literally directly what was the cause. And what we found out was that there were nested causes. But even beyond that, what we began to realize is that the approach that we were using to accident investigation was fundamentally geared for simple and complicated systems. And what we were looking at was a complex system, which required a whole different way of looking at things. In simple and complicated systems, their cause and effect relationship is very strong. If this happens, then this or this or this will happen, but it's a limited set of things that will happen. In simple systems, it's a direct correlation. If this happens, then this happens, one for one, never a change. Complicated, if this happens, any one of a number of things could happen. 
But once we get into complex systems, what we begin to realize is that if something happens, anything, virtually anything, there's an infinite variety of outcomes that could result. So using a direct cause and effect methodology doesn't work. So one of the main points Ivan's making here is that in industrial settings where you have multiple machinery or forest fires, and we have human interaction at different levels, these are actually complex systems. The same input can have drastically different output depending on the circumstances around that. So if you had the same operation that you're completing at a facility multiple times in a row, you may actually get different things happening each time. One of the difficulties that comes out of this kind of cause and effect methodology is that we really end up at the end of the day trying to find fault. So as I mentioned before, you look at what happened, what caused that to happen, what caused that to happen, and at the end of the day, what human action caused that to happen. That really can lead to what Ivan calls second victims and really ties into one of the main principles of this learning review. So those main principles that we assume at the very start um, and all the way through that employees are well-intentioned and that they work within the organizational system that they're trying to meet the actual goals, that they're not really doing anything maliciously. But under these classic investigation methodology, we really find usually it's at the bottom of that we find fault within uh, an employee that's involved. Now, this is really important because what we've been doing when we use mechanical or mechanically de derived or cause and effect type of methodologies is we find that broken component within the system. And if we do that with people, that broken component is always a person. When that happens, we literally name that person as causative or causal or their actions as causal. And the net result is we create second victims. What we realized in every interview of all of our people is that we could not hold them more accountable than they held themselves. And this is really important because what that helped us to realize was that they didn't go into the accident intending to have an accident. In fact, it was quite the contrary. If they'd known they were going to have an accident, they probably wouldn't have come into work that day. So quite the opposite. What they were thinking was that the innovations and the work that they were doing was going to result in positive outcome or they wouldn't have done it at all. We were literally blaming the dead often for their own demise. And people, people who were firefighters, people who were family members, were getting pretty upset with us for doing that. It didn't make sense to the, to the people who were engaged in day-to-day -day operations, and it certainly didn't make sense to family members that their loved ones would go out and do something foolish or stupid. And they really didn't like being called foolish and stupid. Not that we use that language, but we hemmed around the edges of it. So the second victim idea really, really cost us a great deal. It cost us in terms of people wanting to do different missions and different jobs within the organization that were very important jobs. They said, why would I expose myself to that kind of risk and scrutiny if when something goes bad and the potential is always there for that to happen, that I'll be blamed for my own demise or the demise of those near me. Otherwise, people were also traumatized by these events. So we had to think about what we were doing to our people, how we were treating our people. We hire them. They're good people. We empower them to do a job. They go out there and they do it. When they're successful, we reward them. But if there's no success, if there's the opposite of success, if they do fail, then our tendency is to really blame them and castigate them for doing the exact same thing that they did the day before. This line of thinking against fault finding as a approach to incident investigation leads to an additional principle of the learning review, which I particularly like, which is that actions and decisions should be viewed as consequences of the overall system rather than causes. 
contributing to the incident. This terminology allows us to start digging a little bit deeper into, okay, well, why did people feel that that was the best course of action? Or how does the setting that they're involved in or the pressures that they have on them, how did that contribute to the incident? And in Dr. Puppelidi's terminology, we move from fault finding, which is the kind of traditional investigation approach, to more of a sense-making approach. So why did it make sense for those workers to do what they did at that time? Was it normal operation? And how can we change those processes to make the facility safer at the end of the day? So this leads to two tools that are recommended in the learning review and are sort of combined to, to figure out what is this normal working operation. The first of these tools is termed a complex narrative. In this case, they interview people that are involved in the incident to get multiple perspectives. Now, this isn't really about finding the factual, the single approach or single thing that happened or single series of events that led to the incident, because often this is really unobtainable. People have faulty memories, they remember things differently, and you're gonna, when you start to collect these perspectives, get a bunch of different ones. So that is why it's termed a complex narrative instead of finding the single plausible series of events that occurred. So we had to, we began to realize that it was the system not the individual. And we had to change our focus. Um, we did that starting with principles. The principles that we used are rather fundamental, but one of the big ones is that conditions shape decisions and actions. Rather than believing that the behavior of our people is bad, we started thinking that the conditions around them, what surrounded them in their environment, those things were the things we needed to focus on. So to do that, the first thing we did was we uh, interviewed our people rather openly. We didn't put their names on witness statements. We stopped doing that altogether. And instead, we listened to what they had to say, and we took notes. And as we took notes on what they said, we created a complex narrative. By that, what we mean is that the narrative showed multiple perspectives. Now, this became really important because if one person on the fire line saw something one way and another person saw something another way, did they have a mechanism to communicate those two different perspectives? Or did they live in a place where they were assuming that the other person saw things the same way that they did? That revelation was very important to us. And it helped us to do things constructively within the organization to change the way we communicate. Now, that's one example. But the, the other idea around this, this complex narrative is it gives it honors the individuals who were involved in these incidents by capturing their thoughts. Well, how do we do that and be fair? Well, honestly, the first thing we don't look at is we don't look at their statements as evidence. We look at them simply as perspectives. We try and capture them. And then when we have our first draft, we hand back the section of the report that applies to them. And we ask them this question, did we get it right? Did we get your perception of what happened right? So this process described by Ivan gives a good idea of the different perspectives of the employees involved in the incident. This now combined with a second tool that's, that's recommended, which is called a network of influences map. So in this case, or for this tool rather, we're looking to figure out, well, what exact conditions were happening at the time of the incident and were these conditions considered normal? Um, and were the responses to these conditions considered normal? Um, and really what we're talking about is, well, what influences were acting on the workers at the time of the incident? So going from the premise that our people are well-intended and doing the best that they can with limited information, we started to do our reviews very differently. Mainly this was centered around how we ask questions. Rather than taking a traumatized individual who was close to an incident 
and asking them, what did you do? We just simply asked them, tell us to the best of your recollection why it made sense for you to do it. And this reframing of the question helped us to understand things in a very different way. What we began to understand from this line of inquiry was that people are influenced by the, the conditions that surround them. It's not necessarily a cause and effect as much as it's an influence kind of factor. So, for example, if we look at an individual and we say that the individual is fatigued and we can't quantify fatigue, do we throw it away because we can't put a number on it? Well, we say no. We want to understand that as one of the many conditions that might have contributed to decision making. And that, that sounds like what everybody wants to do, but sometimes we don't do it because we can't quantify it. We can't put a number on it. So what we said instead is we're going to take a look at the influences and we're going to build a map of those influences. We call this a network of influences map. And when we build this network of influences, what we begin to see is how these influences that are normal, I mean, in everyday work, can influence decisions and actions in a way that is both positive and negative. And then what we can do is we can focus on the conditions that may be influencing our people to do things that we don't want them to do. For example, to take more risk. So under the learning review and using the complex narrative and the network of influences map, you get an idea of the different conditions that were involved at the time of the incident, and then go back to the groups involved and see, well, were these conditions typically present or were they present under normal operations? If they are present under normal operations, then they have an ability for change. You can go rank them on what has the largest impact and, and fix them one by one. And in the last clip, Ivan talks a bit about this whole process and then some of the success that they've seen at the U.S. Forest Services implementing the learning review process. We cannot change the human condition, but we can change the conditions under which humans worked. What we realized was that there was no process that looked at those conditions, no process that sought to measure or record or map the conditions that influence people in everyday work. That's what the learning review is designed to do. Now, let me give you an idea what the success rate is of the, of the learning review. And I'm going to say this, I, I don't want to take credit for a reduction in accidents, but there has been a significant reduction in accidents. It may be in part due to the learning review and it may be luck. So I'm not going to look at the traditional model of safety being measured by the absence of events. Instead, what I'm going to say is this. We started doing something that was human, fundamentally friendly, fundamentally understanding why people did what they did. And we kept the families of the fallen firefighters in the loop so they could understand what we were trying to do. And we created learning products that would help the field to learn on their own, not learning what to do and what not to do, but learning about how dynamic the situation is and how to better read the situation by understanding the dynamic nature. As we did that, the families began to understand that what we were doing was putting value on the decisions that their loved ones had made. And we stopped getting sued. Litigation stopped from the families of the fallen firefighters. We were fair to them. There was no need for litigation. They didn't have the sense that we were covering something up. Reports went out unredacted. They went out just the way we wrote them. So the families were appeased. The next question is, what about the regulator? Because we've, we're subject to the regulator as well. OSHA is our regulator. And up until we implemented the learning review and enjoined OSHA in the process, we would get violated, often willful, for the general duty clause. 
For those of you who are not familiar, general duty clause basically says the employer is responsible for creating a work, workplace free from known hazard, which is a kind of a difficult thing to do if you're in the forest service and you're sending people into a hazard, wildland fire, the forest itself, and paying them hazard pay on top of it. So we enjoyed OSHA in our quest to really learn from events and they began to see what we were doing. Once we enjoined them and showed them what we were trying to do, we stopped getting violated under the general duty clause. In fact, we haven't had an OSHA violation since we started the learning review. So when we start to think about values, what we start to understand is that what we're really thinking about when we're trying to prevent an accident is how we can better learn from the incidents, not just learning what to do and what not to do, but also learning how to learn in a dynamic environment. This becomes very important to us and becomes an underlying process. So that gives you a good overview of the learning review process and how it may differ from a traditional incident investigation process. I hope from listening to, to Ivan talk, you got a good sense of some holes that there might be in the traditional incident reporting and how that might be remedied with a more kind of holistic approach that looks at the different perspectives that are involved. So just by way of summary, I want to just list this kind of learning review process and the steps involved. The first is it's really a phase program. So you need to get the proper people in place, build up the team that can be there to, to gather the information and put it in the right light. Then there's two tools that they use to collect the information around the incident. The first is a complex narrative that involves different perspectives of the employees that are involved and recognizes that there isn't really going to be a, a one contiguous this is what happened because the perspectives of different employees will be different. So you got to take that into consideration when you collect those responses. The second tool is then this network of influences map. And this is really getting the, the ground view or the overview of all the influences acting on the employees, on the workers, on the facility operators, health and safety management, uh, operations management, and facility operators, and acknowledging that the actions that are taken are not causes that influence the incident, but they're actually consequences of the overall system. Then this information is combined and used and taken back to those that are involved in the incident, to industry experts, and say, are, are these really normal operating conditions in these type of facilities? And if they are, then there's room for change. How do we change these normal operations to avoid taking on this type of risk in the future? And from these, Ivan suggests creating learning products and also creating open-ended questions and surveys to send through either to focus groups or to experts from industry. And you can see the influence of some of this thinking on recent programs like the U.S. Chemical Safety Board's Call to Action on Combustible Dust, which we covered in episode six of the podcast, and some of the new methodologies that they're using on investigating incidents that are happening um, over the last number of years. So before ending this episode, I actually want to play a clip of a kind of back and forth conversation that I had with Ivan after the the initial recording on things like stop work, how close to the margin are we getting with fires and explosions that don't cause any injuries or fatalities? And then how does this actually give us an opportunity to learn moving forward, both using the traditional investigation approach, but also using this learning review process? I didn't plan on actually playing this clip, but the information that we kind of shared and just the discussion that we had was substantial enough that I thought it might be of interest to the listeners. So we're going to play that clip, and then we'll close out this episode of the podcast. That helps them to understand when to call stop work, because what we found is that workers would willingly call stop work if they absolutely knew that something bad was going to happen. But all too often, workers think something bad's going to happen, and they're not entirely sure, and they don't want to take the risk to actually call stop work. Right. 
And I, I have an interesting story about that. Just two weeks ago, actually, I was in a classroom of chemical engineers. Just I was, I knew the speaker, so I was just uh, joining here locally. And the the speaker asked the question. It was about process safety, and said, um, "If you have a a facility, and there's that big red giant stop button, and a worker mistakenly presses that presses that button, there was no hazard." And the whole facility shut down. You lost millions of dollars because you had to be shut down for a whole day. What do you do to that worker? Do you A, fire him, B, tell him it's all right, or C, celebrate? And, and you know, it's very hard when the question's posed that way. Not very many people in the room put up their hand for celebrate, obviously. But really, that's what you, you need to do is you need to say that's exactly what you need to do. If you didn't feel safe, then you need to hit that big red stop button. And you know what? Do it again next time as well. And that's a, that's a hard message. This was a big gift that was given to us by the High Reliability Organizing Group, uh, particularly Carlene Roberts, who wrote a paper with Todd uh, Laporte and Gene Rochlin called uh, High Reliability Organizations Aircraft Carrier Operations at Sea, where they literally observed aircraft carrier operations. And they noted that even the lowest ranking person on the flight deck could call stop work. And when that happened, that person was never chastised, regardless of the outcome. This is an important thing that we have to realize, is that most approaches to accident investigation are taken from the perspective of an investigator who already knows the outcome. The one thing the worker doesn't know is what that outcome is going to be, whether it's going to be positive or whether it's going to be negative. Now, you mentioned this earlier, and it's really important. Most of the time, when people do things, the outcome is positive. What this does is this has a tendency to tell us that what we're doing is right, when right and wrong probably shouldn't be anywhere near the conversation. Instead, what we should be talking about is probably something more along the lines of margin. How close to the margin of failure are we getting? This changes, again, the dialogue and the way we shape our discussions about risk. Risk is not something that's black and white. It's fluid. It's fluid all the time. And the equation of dust and risk is it's predominant in the literature. So what is safe enough? What is acceptable? These are all judgment calls made often by the worker who's closest to the work. Well, I hear, I see it a lot in, in fires. So where the measure of, of what's positive, what's okay is nobody was hurt when there, there was just a fire um, or there was just a, a quote unquote small explosion. When you're talking about margin, that's exactly what I what I hear from that is, where how how close to the line, you know, he just lost a finger. Okay, well, is that over the line? The question is, well, how how close to the line do you is, is having a fire every once a month acceptable, once a year acceptable? And I think organizations will have to define that by the on their own, but also keeping in mind social acceptable norms. You can't define something that's too outside of scope. The question then is, I, I don't think that. Is, was an employee injured? I, I don't think that's the right line. We need a little more margin that because we're that close to the line all the time. Then, you know, we'll be way over one in ten times where where people are getting um, unfortunately fatally injured in in these type of accidents. Exactly, you hit the nail on the head. So as as we start to think about what we want inside a system, we want the system really to be robust. We want the system to be able to accept normal human and normal system variability. So when we think about human variability, often we equate that to error, but sometimes those aren't errors, they're innovations. And that's still built into the normal human variability piece of it. 
when we think about the system's variability, that's where we start thinking about dust leaks. We start thinking about machines that break down. That's systems variability, and it's quite normal. It's not an unusual occurrence. What is kind of sh shocking, though, is that when we see something as graphic as a fire and there is no consequence, instead of looking at that as an opportunity to learn, we often go, it's okay, there was no consequence, no, no bad outcome. We don't have to report it. We don't have to talk about it. When these might be opportunities for us to learn about the system and where the system is approaching those margin boundaries where something catastrophic could happen. I think that's what you were saying. Certainly. And I think tying into, well, what could have happened is, is a good exercise. I think back to Imperial Sugar Refinery, which we covered in a previous podcast episode, but they, they had continuous fires and small scale explosions. I'm using that word small again, without any true large loss for 40, 60 years before they had their catastrophic loss incident that, that took uh, multiple lives and, and injured, I think over over 20 or 30 people as well. That was so well documented. So those type of fires, if your facility is also covered in dust, or if you have these other um, secondary effects that can be knock-on effects after that, you, you really should be doing a what-if scenario just to see how close to that margin you actually are. Yeah. And, and like, like you're saying, this, these small events, if you want to call them small events, or these events with no consequence or significant consequence, they're, they're the opportunity for us to learn. That's saying, hey, maybe we are close to a margin. Doesn't mean we are, but maybe we are, and we should take a look at it. And in that look, we should really be open to understanding that it's not just simply looking for the holes in the Swiss cheese. It's much more than that. It's looking at how things could happen within the system, which is your idea about, you know, what if. But even beyond that, it's saying, well, what does apply and what doesn't apply? What kind of things do we have built into our system to mitigate an adverse outcome? And where can we bolster that? What does that look like? Where are the rules in the system? Do they apply? Are they well-known? Are the rules in conflict with other rules? We have to start looking at this as a, a holistic approach that accepts that the worker isn't the failed component inside the system, that the worker instead is the person who's dealing with all of these different things, juggling, if you will, a bunch of balls in the air, trying to make the best decision that they can. And sometimes they fail. I hope you enjoyed that podcast interview with Ivan Papaliti and the follow-on discussion that we had. I found it really interesting just to hear about his thoughts and some different ways to think about accident investigation, how that can be applied to combustible dust safety and learning from our own instance as we move forward. I think moving into the, the years ahead into 2019 and moving forward, we'll see these more non-traditional approaches to incident investigation start to take hold, especially with things like the U.S. Chemical Safety Board's incident reports um, and that information and, and seeing how we can learn differently from fires and explosions as they occur and hopefully start to decrease the trends or keep in decreasing the trends over time of these injury-causing and fatality-causing loss loss incidents. So as always, I want to thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you really enjoyed this episode. You can get all the information and references that we, we mentioned in the episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 11 for this episode and any of the previous episodes that we mentioned by going to dustsafetyscience.com slash the episode number. And with that, I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I look forward to seeing your comments in the show notes and on the LinkedIn sharing pages and elsewhere across the social media. And I look forward to next week's interview 
where we continue our goal of understanding combustible dust as a global challenge around the world and bringing in perspectives outside of the combustible dust safety community. <laughs>